Singing 
Praise the Lord. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Over the uh, next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to complete this series that we've been in, 3D Christianity, and uh, we're going to conclude by discussing uh, this week and next week how the family and the church benefit one another. And the church has a very definite place in the believer's family. And that family has a very definite place within the church. To think that the two could uh, partition one another from themselves and be healthy in either aspect would be frivolous. I feel very strongly, I, and, and it, you know, this is probably going to be a, a, a a wasted statement, you're probably thinking, yeah, we know that. I feel very, very strongly about the local assembly and the family's involvement in the local assembly. Sure. My, my, my opinions have, have grown so strong in the last few years that I almost feel as if I am a square peg in a round hole a lot of times because what we cannot comprehend, I'm certain of it, and I don't have the education or the vocabulary to define it for you is that the condition that our society is in is directly related to the church losing its center place in the community. And it's interesting to me, and, and I'll get to this in a moment. Uh, you got tonight free, so you forgive me for a moment. It's interesting to me that we all know that but we treat it as if it is some kind of lost nostalgia that cannot be regained, and that is simply not true. It is as if we say, well, you know, life was better without cell phones. Let me get my cell phone out and call somebody, right? Well, life was better when the church was the center of the community. Too bad it's not anymore. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a misnomer to believe that we are powerless in the opportunity of restoring the church to its rightful place, first in our families and then within our community. It could be done if we believed what we amen. And if we amen what we believed. There's some reasons that I believe uh, that the church uh, benefits the family and the family benefits the church. There's reasons I believe that the, the local assembly is very important. And I've given you some bullet points there, and I'm going to try my best not to settle down here. I just wanted you to see that. First, there's a lot of arguments made against the local church, and I'm going to cover some of those in a moment. They're all wrong. Uh, they're absolutely wrong, 100% wrong. They will not stand up under the light of God's Word. But what, what you need to know is Christ loved the church and died and gave Himself for the church. That's who he died for. Now, now we, we can talk all day long about Christ, God loved the world and gave his son for the sins of the world. That is true. But he died specifically to save the 
church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, that's who Christ died for. So you cannot dumb down the importance of the church. The church is the ecclesia. It is the called out assembly of believers. Every born again believer belongs to the church. If you do not belong to the church, you are not a born again believer. Now, I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. Every believer born again belongs to the church. Marriage and family are a revelation of God to man. Those relationships are directly revelatory of the church with Christ and man. The church, that is the ecclesia, and this is where the argument typically begins to diverge, is expressed through the local assembly. Everybody's good when you're talking about the church as in some mystical, uh, without bounds, unknown, floating around in the atmosphere organism, but when you bring it down to the local assembly, there begins to be a lot of excuses. The local assembly is where the church is expressed. And this last one is not so much a statement as it is a question, and I'm happy to hear from you uh, later, not in this moment, but later. If the church is not expressed in the local assembly, tell me how it is expressed and give me some examples. Just think about that. If the local assembly is not how the church is expressed, tell me how the world is to see the expressed image of the local of the church other than the local assembly. And give me some examples. So those things are scriptural truths. They, they become the, the undergirding or the foundation of not only the way that I live my life personally, but the way I direct this particular local assembly and the way I lead my ministry. I believe that the local assembly matters. Even if a person, and I've had these occur, I've had, I've had a couple of, uh, I have one family, good family, leave the church, and at the root of the reason they were leaving was statements that I made concerning church membership. And so uh, I've had people argue with me before, but even if a person desires to argue against the local assembly, and this is what they normally do. They'll tag it or title it as, well, you know, I'm not big on organized religion. It's a cop-out. I mean, look, we're all from Georgia, right? We can tell the truth. That's cop-out. You speak it like it is. So I'm not big on organized religion. Or, you know, well, the church, as you know it today, well, that's man's work. Well, okay, still a cop-out. So... This is the problem. To, to make those statements, you would stumble over all of the elements expressed in the New Testament church, in the scriptures, that is in the book of Acts, which is a transitional slash historical book showing the beginnings, the foundation of the church as an apostolic movement, and then into Paul's writings that would move us through the remainder of the New Testament, defining for us what is church polity and what is the church's place and the revelation of the church to Paul. Those things are all in the scripture. And these are the things that you would find. Corporate gathering, receiving of offerings, singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, community support, 
charitable work, preaching and teaching God's word, corporate prayer, encouragement and edification of one another, missionary work, financial support of certain offices, baptismal services, and communion services, and the proper handling of the dead. All of those principles are directly revealed in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul that follow it. Every one of them, and every one of them uh, are, if, the, if you read and studied and understood, they are part and parcel of what we define as the local assembly. Yes, sir. It's a biblical model. Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to be studying this morning, is among a few of the passages that speak concerning the church and body life within the church. And there's, I want to give you some context before we get to Ephesians 4. And so if you just look at the, the book of Ephesians, and you can, pardon me, you can take this, uh, these bullet points and look later. And again, I'm happy to answer questions. But uh, why would we consider the book of Ephesians when we're talking about the church and the believer's position in the church and the body life of the church? Well, to begin with, it is a letter written directly to the church at Ephesus, so it's applicable to our subject. It's written to a church concerning the church. If you begin looking through the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul talks about the, the, the blessings of redemption, and he concludes with this statement, Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so that makes it applicable to our conversation. Chapter 2, Paul begins speaking about the state of the lost, dead in trespasses and sins, and then he goes on to discuss the state of the saved. You have been quickened in the spirit, and he concludes, concludes that chapter with this concept that Christians are a building, believers are a building built on the foundation of the apostles, and Christ is the cornerstone. That makes it applicable to our conversation. Chapter 3, Paul speaks of the work to build the body of Christ so that, quote, the wisdom of God might be known through the church. Yes, through the church. Chapter 4, which is what we're going to look at in a moment, speaks to the purpose of the church or the body to bring unity of spirit among believers and maturity in the Christian's walk, which is specifically what we're going to talk about today. In chapter 5, there is a challenge to believers to mimic or imitate God, that is to walk like Christ, or walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Chapter 6 concludes by describing the armor of God that every believer is entitled to. So it's very much applicable to what we're talking about. As we get directly to this subject and we try to focus on the subject, I want to show you two points concerning the church and church membership. Let's read uh, first these uh, first 16 verses. Will you stand with me in reverence of God's word? We'll read and then pray and get to it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Verse 8, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's Christ he's talking about. Then he says in verse 11, and he, Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He's talking about the giftings. And then look at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, uh, whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working of the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This is a passage that describes the purpose of the church in the family. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share. And God, I pray you'd work in our hearts and in our minds. God, we typically would pray in this moment for illumination. We would pray, God, that if there was one here that was lost, that they would see the need of salvation and come to the Savior. And, and Lord, we always desire that. But Father, I know that this subject we're dealing with requires illumination and meditation. And God, I pray this morning that you would reveal to us truths that we could not escape, that we must deal with, that we must consider, and that we must determine right or wrong in our own lives. God, I pray you'd work in our hearts to show us the necessity of the church in the believer's family. And God, we depend upon you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. And when we're going to have this conversation about the church, we have to first agree that the church is the body of Christ. Now, that is stated time and again in the scriptures. It's made clear in a number of scriptures and it's intimated in many more. Uh, if you, and I may have included this, I can't remember in your notes. You could read Romans chapter 12. You're going to learn that the church is the body of Christ, that he's the head of it, that we're parts of it, and we all matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to get the same view. Those two, uh, those two passages are very similar. Colossians chapter 1, you're going to read that Christ is the head of the church. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, you've just read it, uh, that, that we are uh, the, the body of Christ. And so what you conclude from all of those things is that the church, the called out assembly, and that goes for the local assembly as well, is an organism. It is a body consistent of body parts, organs and tissues and appendages. and it, However you want to grossly define that, 
it is an organism that every person matters in and makes up a part of. Not only is it a body that we are members of that body, Christ is the head of that body. So you can't elevate church membership without elevating Christ. And you can't be accused of elevating church membership over a relationship with Christ because Christ is the head of the body. And the body is the church. And so if you are faithful to the body, you're being faithful to the head. You can't say one is elevated over the other. It is a synonymous argument that they both relate to one another. Christ is the head of the body, and in personification, he's the husband of it. And we are to be submissive to him the way that it is defined for us in the scriptures. So we've already stated that it is it's expressed through the local assembly. So what do we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that would give us understanding as to the body? Well, the first thing we see is our entrance into this body. That is salvation. And that's what it says in the first part of chapter 4. If you look specifically, verses 4 through 7, there's one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measures of the gift of Christ. So someone might say, okay, if the church is a body, if that is the body of Christ, how do I enter the body? Well, you enter the body of Christ by faith in the Lord. It's salvation. That's what it is. That's how you become a part of the body. You were born again, and when you were born again, you enter into the, the body by faith in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, just a couple of pages back, would tell you that you are saved by faith, through, by grace, through faith, and that it's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So we practice church membership at the local level, and we do that in a number of ways. It depends on denomination and so on and so forth and even even right now we're in a transition of how we celebrate church membership sometimes up until just recently we would you would come down front you tell me that you want to join the church and I'd ask you some cursory questions you would agree to the that you would answer those questions and based on the answers to those questions I would present you to the church body as a as a viable member and the body would vote you in and everybody would hug you and shake you and you become a member of the church that's how you do it here at the local level, and there's a very, various different ways. We've gone to something different. But in reality, the moment that you bend the knee to Christ, the moment you accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you are baptized, you are immersed in the body of Christ. You get in the body through salvation. Every born-again believer is a part of the ecclesia. If someone says, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. I got news for you. They're either ignorant, uninformed, or they are lost. One of the three. Because you can't be one without being the other. If you are born again, you are entered into the body of Christ. And that is without exception. You are a part of the body, you are born again into the body of Christ, immersed. That's the second part. He talks about this baptism. 
Now, but we, would, we could take that and start some sectarian argument about whether you sprinkle or not. That's not what it's talking about right here. He is saying that there is, there is one baptism into the family of God. You are baptism, baptizo, there's a whole lot we could say right there. It's a transliterated word that was never translated. It simply means to immerse. That's what it means. And that's why Baptist dunk instead of sprinkle. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how you became a part of the body of Christ. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, God took you and dunked you. He immersed you in the body of Christ. You were not, you were then a part of the body of Christ. You are in the body of Christ. You are not an ornament on the church building. Rather, now you have become a rock in the wall of the church building. You are a part of the church. You belong to it. So what does that say to us? If, if I say I belong to the church, but I... I Refrain from all faithfulness to the local assembly through which that church expresses itself. That's duplicitous. That is exactly the hypocrisy that we most would say we can't stand. But that's what it's saying. You are you're in the body of Christ. There's another example, by the way. The ark. If you think about the ark in Genesis chapter 6, God looked down and repented him that he had made man. They were thought, their thoughts and their hearts were wicked. And he said, I'm going to destroy them all. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And God said to him, build thyself an ark. And Noah built that ark for 120 years. He preached righteousness. And nobody went but his family. When that ark, when the rain began to fall and the floods began to rise and that ark began to float, Noah's family were in the ark. They were inside it. Doors closed. Now the ark is actually a picture of Christ. It's a picture of salvation. But it is also a picture of how you are immersed in the body of Christ. You're inside him. Nobody hung on to the ark and survived the wrath of God. Nobody rode that thing to glory. Nobody said, well, it's a fine-looking boat. Think I'll hang on to the side of it. Nobody roped a ski to the back of it. They were either in it or they perished under the wrath of God. That is a picture of church membership. You are immersed, born into the family of God. This is the problem I have with that. To be born again and to disclaim the church... It's schizophrenic. It's double-minded. It means that on one side of the argument you're saying, yes, Christ has saved me, and on the other side you're saying, no, I don't want to be associated with the body of Christ. It's, it doesn't make sense. Now, there's people all over the world doing it. Uh, you, I, I read blogs every week of people doing it. And, and so it happens but it's not right. It doesn't agree with the scriptures. A person who claims to be born again but is uninterested in the church 
And, and again, my vocabulary is not as strong as some, but I would boil them down to, to one of three categories. They are either disobedient, they are disgruntled, or they are yet degenerate. One of the three. So if, if you're saying, you're sitting there right now, I see it in some people's eyes, or that could just be you desiring me to quit, I don't know. Uh, but I can see some people thinking right now, so you're telling me that if I don't go to church, I'm not saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you that if you are saved and you're not an active, faithful member of the local assembly, you are being disobedient to the word of God, you're mad at the house of God, or you, yet have, been, you have not yet been saved. Let me put that in some, some very, very simple words. Healthy, active, faithful, and productive membership is as expected of the believer as grapes are to a grapevine, as figs on a fig tree. If you planted a fig bush, tree, whatever, and it never put figs on, is it a healthy fig tree? Well, you would probably question as to whether or not it was a fig tree at all, wouldn't you? Uh, have you ever touched water? Did it surprise you to find it wet? Well, it should not surprise you to find that a born-again believer wants to be associated with the body of Christ. It is natural. It should occur. It is a part of what just happens. Uh, I, I tell this story all the time, much to not a lot of fanfare, but when... When God first moved in my heart as a, as a 31-year-old father of two, married, been saved for 10 or 11 years, didn't live like it, didn't walk like it, didn't talk like it. My wife been saved for, uh, since she was a young person. She was right there with me. We were not attending church. When the Holy Spirit of God began pricking my heart about a number of things in life, and, and it came time that I walked into a church that was preaching God's word and I was immediately convicted that something has got to change. The only thing I could commit to was I'm going to be in church every time the doors are open. That's it. People say, oh, that's, that's so trite. Let me tell you something. I could not say, I'm not going to smoke anymore. I was an addict. I could not say, I'm not going to drink anymore. It was medication for me. I could not say, I'm going to quit listening to all that godless music. It's all I knew. I couldn't say, I'm going to check the flesh because the flesh was ruling me. What I could say is, I am a free man in control of my schedule, and that building is planted on Jefferson Highway, and I know when they're having service. And every time the doors are open, I'm going to have my gimpy tail, along with my wife and kids, sitting in that church, and I'm going to see if God won't be a man of His Word. And He cleansed us. Washed me. It took the wrinkles out of me removed foreign thoughts out of my head through the preaching and the teaching of God's word through active, 
faithful involvement in the house of God. If we would not have made that commitment, I have no idea where our family would be today, but it would not be where it is. Do you have to go to church in order to be saved? No. But if you're born again, you ought to have a desire in your heart to be near people, God's people. And you ought to be, have a desire in your heart to do God's work in the community and to give to God's work and to support God's work and to be a part of God's work. It's natural. You should want to do that. It's what happens when you're born again. It also occurs by grace. He says there that it's given by grace according to the measure of the gifts of grace. And we won't belabor that point, but everything in your life as a believer is by the grace of God. You're saved by the grace of God. Uh, you are sanctified by the grace of God. Your body positioned in the house of God is, or in the body of Christ is a, a by, uh, by the grace of God. Your gifting, whatever it may be, and it's there, is by grace. Uh, those are grace gifts. You say, well, I don't have any gifts. That's not true. You just haven't figured out how to use the gifts that God has given you to the honor and glory of the Lord, and you need to start looking towards that. Well, I don't sing. That's fine. Can you count? we got work in that area too there's a lot of things that you can do in the house of God you're gifted in something or else you wouldn't be earning a living and you need to figure out how you can employ that in the house of God in the body of Christ the, the next section that, that we want to look at is verses uh, 12 through 16 and this is what really applies to the, the, the subject of what does the church do for the family? What is the purpose of the church being involved with the family? What am I going to gain? What do I get out of the deal if I, if I commit to, you know, three or four hours a week worth of attendance and, and three or four hours a week worth of service? What is the benefit to me? And that's really what the Apostle Paul mentions from verses 12 down through 16. And, and it is very simply this. Uh, we are edified in the body. So you are nourished, you are established, you are built up in the body of Christ. Just think about it like any other organ. If you uh, reach down your throat and yank one of your lungs out and lay it on the table, is that gross? I was trying to be gross. Did it work? Yeah. And you laid it on the table, how valid would that lung be and how, for how long? Well, it wouldn't, right? I, I'm supposing it would die because it's no longer in the body. And when you take a believer out of the body, which is expressed through the local assembly, and you set them aside, they become invalid. Invalids. They're not worth, they, they don't have any intrinsic value. Their value is in the body. They are nourished edified and built up when they're in the body. You've heard that done before, I'm sure, with the coal. You take the burning ember out of a fireplace and set it on the mantle. It's still close to it, but in a few moments it'll smolder out because it's not in the flame. Same idea. Our edification is in the body, and that edification is for sanctification. It is to grow us and move us. So every aspect of church membership, body membership, is meant to develop the believer and move them in the process of sanctification towards the goal of conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church does 
if the church is healthy, we're assuming that in this conversation, that's what the church does in the believer's life. It moves them in sanctification towards the goal of conformity to Christ. So when we claim salvation and we deny, delay, or disregard sanctification, we're pushing away the inevitable for the regenerate believer. You are going to be sanctified. If you've been born again, you've been justified. Two things are going to happen in your life before, by the end of your days. One is you're going to be sanctified. The other is you're going to be glorified. They're going to occur if you have been justified. If you're born again, you will be sanctified. That is uh, brought around to the image of Christ, conformed to the image of Christ. And when that is complete and you stand face to face with him, you will be in a glorified state. Those things are going to occur. Sanctification is a process and it is supposed to be progressive. So when I get saved, I'm supposed to get involved and I am supposed to be again progressively being conformed to the image of Christ. And so I can, like the little children sing, uh, say, uh, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, right? And I'm, I'm working, and that's what church membership does. So when we join up or pair up, if you will, that's a terminology for today, link up with the body in complete obedience to the word, we began to move towards the fulfillment of the true goal, which is sanctification that is conformity to Christ. And Paul mentions in this passage several milestones along the road, road to conformity. Each has definite benefits and each is linked to one another. So the first thing he says there in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. If you look down through there, you will see that terminology, the perfecting of the saints, the maturity of the believer, the stature of the believer, the fullness of Christ, and then finally Paul says, no longer children but grown men. Or actually he says, no longer being children. The implication is, you're not a child now, you're a man. Paul would say in other places, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I became a man, I talked like a man. Uh, we like to take that from a macho perspective. It's not a macho thing. It is a sanctification thing. It is growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I was young, I didn't understand these things. And the more I've studied, the more I've grown, the more I understand. And so I talk more like a grown man now, a perfect man, a mature man, a completed man. That is the picture, the perfecting of the saint. It speaks to the maturity or the completion rather than flawlessness or spotless perfection. It is, it is talking about spiritual fullness, uh, maturity, uh, emotional maturity, functional maturity, practical maturity. And that maturity displays itself in a very general recognition of the goal of the church and or of the gospel. And it shows itself in an ability to Fall into place and go to work rather than falling out of peace with your spiritual brothers and sisters. Maturity, this maturity, this perfecting of the saints is very sad in my opinion because this, I think this is rung number one in all of these things that, that he mentions and it is the greatest thing missing today in church. You don't believe me? Uh, rearrange somebody's Sunday school class. 
Tell somebody to go stand in a different door and hand out bulletins instead of the front door. Try that. And you see what happens. Because I tell you what happens. Oh, you done took my ministry away from me. Your ministry. Your ministry? You got in this ministry the same way the rest of us did. Christ died on the cross for you. The ministry of this church is to win West Jackson County with the gospel. The goal of the church is to preach, present, teach, and model the gospel. How can anything become more important than preaching and teaching and modeling and presenting the gospel? It can't, except in, with immaturity. Then everything becomes more important. So it's the perfecting of the saints. It's maturity, and we need it. He goes on to talk about the unity of the faith. Here, the, this, this is the body of revealed truth. When he talks about the faith, it is a definite article, the faith. And he's talking about this body of revealed truth, the faith. So, so we need unity in the faith. That means that we have to determine what are the fundamental beliefs of the faith and to be unified in those fundamental things. And if you and I cannot unify in that fundamental thing, one of us needs to go find somebody we can unify with. The hard stuff right there, right? But if there's, if there's 150 people in the church and one of them believes a different body of faith, there's no hard feelings, I love you. <laughs> but you need to be unified in the faith. It's a command of the scriptures. It is an implied imperative. And, and when, he, when he talks about this, that means knowing and understanding the basic tenets of the faith, the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, and then knowing them and believing them, going to work with them, which, which means that, that you don't, you're not divisive over tertiary issues. No. You, you know, you've, it's been a joke for years. You know, church broke up over the color of the carpet. Man, I'm, I mean, I know, look, I know... It's a joke, and at the same time, we know churches that did it, so it's kind of not a joke, and it's kind of a snide, sarcastic comment towards, but this is what it really is. It really is very, very sad, because what was that church there for, right? We, we, lose, we, lose, we lose every bit of importance if our focus leaves the gospel. Now, now we, can, we can do all sorts of things within the realm of presenting the gospel. We, we, can, we can disciple people. We can teach people. We can lead people. We can do foreign missions work. We can do community helps. We can do a number of things. But if the central focus of the church ever leaves the salvation of the lost through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, before long, you're going to be arguing over paint colors True. and specific job titles. It's unity 
in the faith. And, and, and by the way, when Paul defines this as the faith, he is saying that there's only one. He's already stated that clearly. There's only one faith. So all other beliefs, you know, what's the conversation? Well, you have your faith and I have mine. No. No, no. <laughs> no we don't. There's only one. There's only one faith. And if it's not the faith, that is the revealed body of work as given to us in the canonized Bible, that inerrant, infallible truth of God, it is not the faith. It may be a faith, but it is a non-productive faith. Amen. Unity of the faith. And then he, he gives us this picture here, knowledge of Christ. Comprehending who Christ is and what he has done. And, and oftentimes uh, we, we pray that we want to grow in grace and knowledge. Paul would even say, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. But if you're not developing a substantial knowledge of Christ, you're backing up. And, and uh, again, I'm not trying to be harmful, but you cannot develop a substantial knowledge of Christ with occasional random worship attendance. You can't. It just will not happen. He lists several more, and I'm going to stop. Stability of the believer is very important. Spiritual savvy, knowing who to believe and who to trust. Courage to speak the truth. All of those things are very important. And they all derived from faithful, active, devoted church membership. That's what the church can offer the family. You need the church in your family. And the church needs your family. And the world needs the church. Would you stand with me this morning? Just ask yourself these questions as you meditate on these truths. In what ways could you be more active or more faithful in the church? What difference could you make if you were more Christ-like? And what do you need to do about it? What is your response to that need? Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I pray that you bless um, this time of invitation. Help us, Lord, as we seek to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.